welcome. Uh, but my name is Justin. I'm the student ministries pastor here at New Hope. So that means I work with high school and middle school kids. I'm a little excited for a change of scenery today uh, to speak with adults. Um, but man, I love working here at New Hope. I've been here for about six years now, uh, and I am happily married. My wife, I don't know if she's here or not, but we've been married for about five years. So in August, we'll hit our five-year mark, and we are still learning as we go. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. We're learning as we go because we have now a one-and-a-half-year-old son. His name is Tom, and he is at the age where we're happy that he's doing things now, like he's moving and walking. Um, but he's also doing everything. So that means he's getting into everything. He's, if we look around, he's 20 feet the other direction. So we've got our hands full, but we're learning. Uh, we're super happy to be a part of New Hope. We're so happy to be um, a part of this church. And I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. So a little bit about me, but we have a lot uh, to talk about as far as our series goes. If you haven't been here this summer, we're in the middle of a series that's been taking us through the book of Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 today. Um, but before we get into our actual passage, I want to give a little background on what's happening, and you'll see why, because this is going to play into what it is we're talking about this morning. Um, the first part of Galatians, we see a lot about Paul. We know he's the one who wrote it. We know he's writing to these churches, this province of Galatia. And his main reason, or one of the big reasons, is because there are these people who have entered these churches, these places, and they're distorting the gospel. And so Paul lets us know right off the bat, hey, this is what's happening, and this is what needs to be worked on. He also has let us know about kind of his call to ministry, what that's looked like. And then last week, Pastor Andy, we transitioned into chapter two, which is quite a bit of time has passed. And so he's going to actually, what we talked about last week, Paul's going to give us kind of an account of some of these missionary trips he's been taking. And last week was all about Titus, and we learned that there are these people in Jerusalem with Titus and these uh, apostles, the disciples, and they're, they're coercing, they're trying to pressure Titus into being circumcised. And this is a huge part of what Galatians talks about, but essentially these people were saying, hey, we need you to be circumcised so you can fall into this Jewish tradition in order to be saved because that's how we've done things, that's what the law says, and that's how things are supposed to work. And there's this misunderstanding of what this new gospel is supposed to look like. And so what we could say, and we'll explain this in a sec, but what we could say is last week, we saw an example of what a right belief looks like, or excuse me, a right action looks like, paired with a wrong belief. So these people are saying, hey, we believe that in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with Jesus, you have to go through this act. And Titus goes against that, right? He's committed to his faith. He's committed to the gospel. And he says, I'm going to go against that. And I bring all that up um, because today, the second half of chapter two is going to be the reverse of that situation. We're going to have another person come into the table here, come into the conversation. And we're going to see what right belief looks like paired with wrong actions, uh, personally, I think this is an area we all are going to find we probably struggle in more than we realize, or at least more than we really want to admit. So we're going to look for that during this section. We're going to look for what it means or what's happening here that's causing a right belief 
but a wrong action. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them up. We're going to look to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. So you can open your Bibles there and follow along. We'll have the uh, verses on the screen. Um, and we're going to do a couple sections. We're going to split this up because Paul gets pretty wordy and pretty intense in this section of Scripture. But we're going to look and see this new interaction he has. So chapter 2, verse 11, it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, and he's talking about Peter here, okay? So this is another name for Peter. But he says, When he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So we have a couple things going on here. We now have this guy, Peter. This is the same Peter who we know of in the New Testament, who walked with Jesus, who did life with Jesus. And Paul opposes him to his face. All because if we were to just read the text just as it is here, what we've just read, we see Paul calls Peter out because he's changed his eating habits. Right, like in a sense, he's saying, hey, so Peter, just so you know, you were eating with these people, and now you're eating with these people. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this before, but have you ever had this happen where, you know, you, you are invited or you invite a group of friends, your best friend couple, and you're like, hey, let's go out to dinner. It'll be great. It's, let's just go enjoy this weekend. We'll have a meal together. We'll have a lot of fun. And they let you know, hey, we're really sorry, but things are crazy. They're busy. So we just can't make that happen. And so you decide, okay, well, let's just go downtown and have a meal. And you run into those people, right? Like problem and stuff is going to happen when, that, when you have that interaction with those people. This is what Peter and Paul are having right now on, on the basis of this conversation. They've ran into each other. Paul says, hey, I thought you said you were doing this, but you're actually doing this. You said you were eating with these people. Now you're eating with these but for Paul, this is more than just hurt feelings, right? This is more than just a, hey, I thought you said you were doing this. What is interesting about this passage is that what Peter's doing is he's not just eating with Gentiles. This is really important for us to grasp because this would have been a big deal. For this meal type of interaction, what's actually happening here is this is a type of what some people call table fellowship. So Peter's engaging, not just in a meal. He's not just going over to someone's house, having dinner, and then leaving. He's engaging in life with these people. They're having a meal together, but they're also sharing and talking and doing life, discussing what's going on, talking about their relationship with God. It's kind of like what we would equate almost to a small group here at New Hope. It's that same concept. So this is deeper than just, hey, you're eating food with somebody else. And Peter, excuse me, Paul is calling him out because he's not eating with these Gentiles. But the bigger thing would actually have been the fact that Peter was eating with them in the first place. Because the Old Testament had these laws, which is a lot of what we're struggling with here in this book, what we're working through and learning. It had these laws that were called essentially clean laws. It was an idea that, hey, if you needed to approach God, if you wanted to have a relationship with him, you had to go through these regulations. You had to eat certain foods. You had to not eat with certain people to be ceremonially clean. 
And so eating with a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, someone who at that time or at the time before was not a part of God's people meant you are an unclean person for doing that. But this is what Peter was doing. And we know, we'll talk about this in a sec, we know why he was participating in this, but for some reason, Paul says, hey, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the fact that you've gone back on what it is you said you were doing. We know Jesus had kind of paved the way for this already. In Mark chapter two, Jesus jumps right in and has meals with these tax collectors. And we can see clearly like, hey, all of a sudden Jesus says this old way of living, this doesn't matter. Same with Peter. He has a revelation from God in Acts chapter 11, where God says, hey, these old laws, these regulations, these don't have to limit you from having a relationship with God anymore. And so both Peter and Paul know what should be done, but Peter's gone back on what he said, essentially. And culturally, this would have been a huge deal. This would have been a massive thing. And so this is kind of why Paul calls him out. But if we really look at what's happening here, why is it, why is it that Paul's so concerned about this? Right, why is it that he's willing to say, out of the few chapters in Galatians, I'm going to use my limited ink and paper to write about this interaction, not just because I'm frustrated with what Peter's doing, there's got to be more to this. And he explains it in this section. He says that there are people who've come from James, and a lot of commentators say that this doesn't necessarily mean these people were with James, and this was James' plan to bring people in and deceive. These are probably spies who are coming in and trying to distort the gospel. But these people have showed up, and they've pressured Peter and other people to pull back from this new gospel. They've come and they've said, hey, listen, out of fear, we want to pressure you and make sure you go back to living the way you used to live. It's commonly known, and Peter, Paul so kindly uh, calls Peter out for what he's doing. It's commonly known as being a hypocrite, right? And we all love being called a hypocrite, right? Like, that's just a great way to start a conversation with someone. Hey, by the way, you're being a hypocrite, right? Good job, Paul. We know he doesn't hold back. This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, here's, here's what's happening. That word hypocrite, it's a Greek word. It's meant to be used in the theater. So it's actually a means of saying, hey, you're acting out a person. You're sometimes physically just wearing a mask. You're, you're playing a role that is not who you actually are. And Peter, this, this is what you're doing. You said you believed in one thing. You said you were willing to eat and, and have fellowship with these Gentiles, but now, why are you going back on this? What's the reason for this? And we can all relate. We live in a world where hypocrisy is just a thing, right? We probably don't even realize how often we see it. And in the world of social media, this probably happens on a daily basis. Right? How many of you have seen those perfect family photos that were taken on a vacation with like the cutest caption that just says, God is good, family is perfect, this was the most special weekend of our lives. And if you were to ask anybody in the family, like, hey, how was it minutes before or minutes after that picture, right? They'd be like, yeah, it didn't quite go that way, right? We're never going there again. Uh, this is what we're used to. And this, in a deeper, more real sense, is kind of what Peter's doing when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a believer of who Jesus is and what he's done, but I'm only gonna do this in a certain context. I'm only gonna do this sometimes. 
And this is why Paul brings us up. This is why he wants us to take note of this. I actually think he's using this interaction with Peter to say, hey, this is the whole purpose of me writing this book to you guys, is I need you to get on board with what this gospel is supposed to look like. It's not just a matter of Peter saying, hey, I'm gonna do this, but then doing something else. It's truly a matter of what the gospel should look like. And so Peter seems to have the right belief, right? We know, hey, he's done this once before. He's been living this way. He's said he believes in this, but he's got the wrong actions. He's pulling back. He's being pressured. He's choosing to say, I'm only going to act this way when I need to. And that says a lot. But the gospel is meant for us to live with both right beliefs and right behavior. And that's kind of what Paul's going to talk to us about in this book, or in this chapter, in this section specifically. So what does that look like, to have a right belief and a right behavior? How can we get to this point? I would say it truly does. It comes down to one word, and um, this is a word we probably hear at church all the time, so I'm hoping that this doesn't fall on deaf ears. I'm hoping we can see how important this word is. And in fact, Paul hasn't even mentioned it in the book of Galatians yet. We're gonna read it in just a minute. But the only way for us to truly live out the gospel with right beliefs and right actions is by faith. The only way. Because you can't say you believe in God, you can't live for him without faith. It's required. And Paul's gonna defend his case here in just a minute. But there's three things in this section that I think are really crucial and really important for us to grasp when it comes to faith. When it comes to saying, hey, if I wanna live out the gospel, these, there's three things about faith that I need to have in check. And the first thing is that to live out the gospel requires a consistent faith. And we might read that and say, well, that makes perfect sense, right? For Peter, he's the example, poor guy, right? Paul's literally calling him out for thousands and millions of people to read years later, say, hey, don't be like this guy. <laughs> don't have a faith that's inconsistent. An inconsistent faith means your faith isn't bound to one person, right? You're willing to bounce back and forth to go from place to place. And I think there's a couple dangers that come with having an inconsistent faith. One is that it shows our allegiance isn't to anyone, truly. Right? If you're willing to say, hey, I believe in this, even if we take faith out of the picture for a second, I believe in this thing, I believe in this person, but as soon as the next thing or person comes along, they're a little more interesting, they've got a little more facts, I think I'm gonna jump ship and hang out and believe in this person or thing. Was our allegiance really truly to what we said it was in the beginning? An inconsistent faith also deceives and it manipulates others. And Paul's really clear about this. In fact, he mentions Barnabas by name. Barnabas was a loyal, devout Christian who had done a lot with Paul. And he's, by him putting this name in here, he's saying, hey, Peter, you are having such a big influence on your inconsistent faith that you're pulling people away from the gospel. The last thing is it doesn't allow for true authenticity. Right, something that's authentic, it's 100% in and of itself. It's pure. It is exactly what it is. There's no taint or anything that's added to it. And we have to be careful with what an inconsistent faith can do to our relationship with God. I liken it to this. I'm not a huge sports fan, um, but I do know this is a tough season for sports fans because there's not a whole lot of 
big games or important things going on. So it's like, what are we supposed to do? But what I, but I, what I know when it comes to sports is there's one type of fan in particular that nobody really enjoys, and it's the person who every season gets ready for the playoffs, and they look at the teams and they say, okay, this team's doing the best, so I'm all out for this team. I'm going to go buy their gear. I'm going to support them. I'm going to watch the games. And then when they win and next season comes back, I'll wait and see who the next team is. That's really good. And I'll follow them, right? Like you're not a true fan. You're not a true team member if that's how you're living your life. I heard a story once of a guy uh, who was at a college football game, a championship game, and he's got a jersey on for one of the teams and they're winning the game. It goes all the way down into overtime and the team loses. And as soon as they lose, this guy takes his jersey off and he has a t-shirt with the other team on it. So he, which is a dangerous thing to do at a championship game, I think. Uh, but the point here is this guy, he showed up and he wasn't a part of either team. And if our faith is inconsistent, this is kind of a scary thing to ask, what team are we a part of? Who are we truly following? I think Peter, his faith becomes inconsistent because he took his eyes off of Jesus and he let his culture influence him. And so if we take that, let me ask you a question this morning. How does your culture influence your faith? How does your workplace influence how you live out your relationship with Jesus? The hobbies and the things you're into, how do you act with those people compared to who you are here? I grew up in the church I know how this works. I know that at church we put one jersey on and we struggle to go to work and put another jersey on and say, hey, I'm on this team, but I'm gonna bounce back and forth a little bit. You know, I know in Bend, we live in a culture where there's so many things that are great and fun and activities that we can participate in, but those people aren't always the best people to be around. And so we say, I'll just act like them instead of show Jesus to them. And so our culture has a dangerous way of influencing our faith when our faith should be influenced by Jesus and what he's done for us. So a follow-up question with that is, what inconsistencies do you have in your faith right now? How might, it's a scary thing to do, but how might you relate to Peter here a little bit and say, yeah, if I look at my life, I can see this is where I'm inconsistent. But let's read along because poor Peter. Paul's going to lay into him a little bit, which will make us feel better about ourselves here. Uh, But he's going to explain, hey, here's how you avoid this. In fact, he's going to let Peter know in front of everybody, he's going to call him out to everybody. And some say that this next section is literally a script of what he said. It's word for word of what he said to Peter. And he's going to give us an idea of, hey, here's what you need to bounce back to. Here's what this looks like to avoid. We'll pick up in verse 14. It's going to get a little wordy, but we'll stop and explain a little bit of what Paul means with some of this phrasing he's about to give us. Uh, verse 14, when I saw that they, this would be Peter and the, uh, and the others, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? For we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
Lastly, he says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? It's a pretty big statement for Paul to make there. He says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. So Paul, he tells Peter it all. He says, hey, here's why I'm frustrated with you. Here's what's happening. And it's very wordy, and he throws a lot of details in this. But in a sense, what he's actually doing is saying, hey, here's what you need to go back on. I'm going to reiterate this over and over and over so you grasp what you're missing. If we're to summarize it, he's kind of talking in two different points here. The first, what we've already mentioned, he's, he says, hey, you're not being straightforward about your faith. You're not being straightforward about the gospel. That word literally means you're not walking straight. So when it comes to saying you believe in God, you're off the course, you're walking a different direction. You need to get back into being in step with God. And in Galatians 5, he's going to tell us even more what that looks like to walk in step even with the Spirit. But he's also saying, you're a Jew and you know better. It's kind of interesting verbiage, but he kind of says, hey, you're not like these Gentile sinners, meaning you have grown up in a culture that knows the law, understands what it should be about. And we could maybe even imply here that he's saying, weren't you with Jesus? Like, weren't you close with him? Shouldn't you know better than to be doing what it is you're doing right now? And this is all happening in person, right? So Peter's probably like being called out in front of everybody. He's like, how the heck do I respond to this? This is crazy. But what Paul really wants him to, to get, and he uses this word, this is the first time we see faith, but he pairs it with something else. This is our second faith issue that we have to understand if we're gonna live out the gospel, and it's that we are justified by faith. That faith, or excuse me, that word justification is a really churchy word. It's kind of a scary word sometimes if we think about that. But really, this is a judicial term, right? It's, it's meant for a judge to say, hey, I'm going to make a declaration. I'm going to make a one-time act that says what you have done that was wrong, it's now right. And I want you guys to let this sink in for just a second because what Paul is saying here is so insane for the culture back then, and I really think it's insane for us now, is he's saying we are justified by faith and only faith. So think about that. We are made right, not by our works. All this law keeping you're trying to do, Peter, all this going back and saying, well, like, I believe this, but really if, if I don't follow and carry out these laws, if I don't do these certain things, then my relationship with God is going to be tainted. No. It's by believing in him. It's by saying, Jesus, I believe who you are. I believe what you've done and I want to be a part of it. And I want to follow you. And this is why this was so huge. This is why people were trying to sneak into these churches of Galatia and say, we got to change this because this isn't how things are supposed to be. And people were having such a hard time with this because what this means is if we're to say, hey, I'm justified, I'm made right by faith and faith alone, the scary thing happens, that means we're all sinners. <laughs> it means we are all unworthy. It means we're all on the same page. And so these Jews back then are saying, we have been following the law, we've been doing everything we're supposed to be doing. And now, Paul, how can you say, all you got to do is just say, I believe. This is so far-fetched from what these people were used to. And I actually think it's 
still far-fetched for a lot of us. This means we all fall short, and Romans 3.23 emphasizes this, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we could leave it at that and say, well, that's a bummer, <laughs> right? We're all not perfect. We're all unworthy. But the benefit of this, the positive light of this is that it also means any one of us in this room, any person we run into, they can be a believer and they can be a part of this family of Christians. That's hard for us to admit sometimes. I think it's easy for us maybe to admit for ourselves, but it's hard to say that for somebody else. So this idea of justification, this idea of being made right, we have to grasp this in order to live out the gospel. We have to believe that, hey, if I put my faith in Jesus, I am saved. It's not a process, justification. It's an act. It's a one-time thing. So let me ask a question, another question for you guys. What is it that you're working for right now? Or what are your actions, what are you hoping to get out of the things you're doing? And we could equate this to work and even the sense of saying, hey, if, if you're so focused at work on getting the promotion, to get the raise, to get more money, to get the bigger house, to have a comfortable life and live perfectly with you and your family, are you really believing that works have nothing to do with this? Or are you so focused on works that you're missing this beautiful part of what the gospel says? Have you fully grasped what it means to be made right just by believing? Because here's why this is incredible. You don't have to be exhausted anymore. You don't have to spend day after day working to earn favor with God, working to say it. This sin that, struggle, that I struggle with on a daily basis that comes back into my life and I'm constantly going to God and constantly feeling unworthy, God says, hey, you know what? Let me take care of that for you. You're forgiven because you believe in me. I think we can have peace with that. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the danger with this, and this becomes a thing that Paul has to talk about and defend, and he's gonna do so in this book and many others, is that, well, if we're justified by faith, if all it takes is one simple action to say, hey, you know what? Believe and you're good, so I don't have to do anything else. Right, this is a big misconception that we can have about Christianity. So all I do is believe and I'm good? No, in fact, Paul's gonna say, we're not just justified by faith, but we have to live by faith as well. So let's read this last section of chapter two because he's gonna come to a conclusion with this thought, this idea of what the gospel is supposed to look like. And he says this in verse 19. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And I've been crucified with Christ and, it's, I, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law. And this is a big deal for Paul to say this. Christ died for nothing. I mean, could you imagine, like he's calling Peter out in front of everybody and he's basically saying, hey, if this is really what you're gonna do, if you're gonna go back on what it is you've been saying, if you're not gonna be consistent in your faith, if you're not gonna believe you're justified by faith, are you saying that Christ died for nothing? All right, Peter's probably like, oh man, I'm in big trouble right now. But it's such a real 
issue that we struggle with. And we know Christ died for nothing. And Peter knows this too. And one of the cool pictures about this story is we know Peter goes on to do great things. There's hope for us. But what Paul wants us to recognize in this last statement, what he wants us to grasp is that there was so much tension between doing and acting and believing is that he wants us to know, hey, the law is not, it's not unnecessary. Like the law has a purpose. He wants us to know your works have a purpose. In fact, he says, I had to die to the law. Like I had to use the law to recognize how unperfect I was and I need Jesus because of it. The only way though to live for Jesus, the only way to live out this gospel then requires that we live by faith. And this is that last piece. This is that missing piece. This is the action piece. This is the part where we say, well, there's gotta be something to do. Yes, there is something to do, but it's not to earn. It's a reaction to what we've been given. Our works don't become meaningless. This is what Paul is trying to say. Our works don't become meaningless. They become an overflow of what Jesus is doing in our lives. You can think of it this way. Our works don't just become a reaction because of a gift we've received, but, and, and not an action, excuse me, to receive a gift. So what we're doing here is we're saying, I've been given something and I gotta do something about it. I've been blessed, I'm saved because of this, so there's gotta be a response to this. I don't just take this and leave it. Growing up, um, I, had a really, I, I have a really close relationship with my grandparents, and my grandpa's someone I've always looked up to growing up. And I remember when we were growing up, he had this, it was kind of your typical grandparent scenery here. He had a big workshop with all sorts of cool toys and trinkets and things from way back when, and I loved going in and listening to each, each little thing in his shop had a story. And there was one thing in particular that caught my eye when I was, I was about probably eighth or ninth grade. And he had a, an old, it was a, if you know anything about road bikes, it was an old road bike, it was a Peugeot, it was a lightweight custom fit bike that he used. And he used this all over when he was growing up. So this had story after story of going from city to city all across the West Coast. He had done all sorts of stuff with this bike. And I remember every time I'd go over there, I just thought this was the coolest thing. And one day I kind of mentioned to him in probably not the best way possible, but basically saying, hey, do you think you'd ever want to get rid of this? This super personal, intimate, you know, thing you have. Do you want to just give this to me? Uh, because I love this. I love what it was all about. I love the stories. I love being able to go out and ride bikes. And so over time, for a couple years, every time I would see him, it was always Hey, so are you using your bike right now? Hey, uh, can I borrow this for a little bit? Are you, are you still like wanting to hold on to this? And it was a constant idea of like, maybe if I work hard enough, I can earn this. And so one day, um, about probably around graduation time, he comes to me and he says, hey, I have a gift that I wanna give you. And it was this bike. And he said, hey, I wanna give this to you. I know you have had uh, such a big um, liking to this and I, I want you to enjoy it. And now could you imagine if I said, hey, thank you so much. I'm gonna keep this in the garage and I'll probably let it collect dust and not do anything about it, right? That would be so backwards thinking and backwards living. 
But instead, what I did when I received that, the first thing I did was I took it to the shop, I got it fixed up, I got it cleaned up, I got it ready to roll, I rode it around town, I bragged about it, I showed people what it looked like, and it was one of those things where it was like everything I did was about that bike, and it still is, I still have it. And we seem to struggle sometimes to react to the bigger gift that God's given us. I think sometimes we struggle to say, you know what? I see what you've given me, but I'm gonna still, I'm gonna believe, but I'm also gonna try to fix some things on my own. I'm gonna act for you in certain situations, but I'm also gonna do things my way when I feel like it. Paul's saying it doesn't work that way. In fact, are we really living for God if it's not an overflow from our heart? That's a big question to ask. This gift is all about reacting. This means to say, hey, I'm forgiven and I'm made right by what Jesus has done requires us to live by faith. I love what Paul says here. He's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. This isn't just a receiving of a gift. This is a turning into a completely new person. That's what Paul means. He says, hey, for me to accept and receive this means I've got to, and I get to, put my old sinful self away and I get to live for Jesus on a daily basis. And the only way we can do that is through faith. Now, the last thing he throws in there, and I love this, I think this is perfect when it comes to the gospel, is he gives us one final little, it's really easy to miss it, but he gives us one final little thought in here. Because he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. He's not just saying, he's, he's already going against, hey, just do this because I say so. He's saying, do this because of what Jesus did for you. And as obvious or as simple as this message may be, I think we need to hear it way more often. I think we need to remember way more often, why is it that I'm living for Christ? What is the reason I'm living for Christ right now? Because if we look at what he's done for us, Paul invites us to this relationship. He says, hey, you and me, we're saved because Christ died for us. He made it so we don't have to feel imperfect our whole lives. He made it so we can have a relationship with him. And this is hard for us to grasp because we're so fixated on fixing our problems. We're so concerned with working to achieve. But I think it's time for us to stop trying to earn God's grace and to start just reacting, responding to what God's done for you and me. He's forgiven us. He's made us right. He's made us new. And so I think if we want to truly live out the gospel, we have to go back to this. We have to have a consistent faith. We have to make sure we're living because we know and believe that Jesus died for us and that's what it takes to be made right. And we've got to live it out. So my, if I were to give you guys something to think about, something to chew on this week, it would be this. Let your actions become a result of grace and not a means to earn grace. We're gonna pray here and the worship team's gonna come out, but let me ask you guys, let me have you think about this during this last song. What's God done in your life? How, how can you take this idea and say, you know what? When I put my faith in Jesus, he cleans my sin up. His grace 
is so strong and so powerful. It's time for me to embrace that. So let's think about that. Let's close our eyes. Let's pray. Because Father God, we are so, so thankful that we follow, we believe in a, in a Father who says we're forgiven. We don't have to go through all of these steps. We don't have to follow all of these laws, but rather those things remind us of how much we need you and you take us as who we are. So God, this week, can we stop trying to earn your grace? Can we embrace it? And can our actions be a response to what that looks like? We thank you and we pray this in your holy name. Amen.